This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Hello and welcome to Primal Screen, a show and podcast all about screen culture from movies on the big screen to whatever you're streaming. We're broadcasting tonight from the Triple R studios on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation. This is and always will be Aboriginal land. I'm your host, Flick Ford, and I'm joined tonight by writer and academic, Dr. Julia Tullaharpa. Hey, Jules. Hi. (laughs) Your Primal Screen debut. That's right. Um, So many listeners would have heard that the American novelist uh, Cormac McCarthy died last week. Um, McCarthy wrote 12 novels, including The Road, The Border Trilogy, uh, Blood Meridian, No Country for Old Men, and two recent releases from last year, uh, The Passenger and Stella Maris, is it? Yeah, that's right. Yep. Yep. Um, So McCarthy's work, it often conjures these hostile worlds um, and closed-off men, um, you know, violent tales often that kind of um, spoke to the challenges but also the beauty of the world. And on tonight's show, we're going to delve into some of the screen adaptations like the Coen Brothers' No Country for Old Men, uh, John Hillcoat's The Road and Billy Bob Thornton's All the Pretty Horses, plus the original screenplays that McCarthy wrote for films such as No Country for Old Men and Ridley Scott's The Counselor. Uh, Julia. Yes. We, we should announce there is a disclaimer. I, we do know each other very well. Quite well. Quite well. <laughs> we shared an office for what feels like, was it? Must be ne- nearly 10 years. Yeah, I was thinking yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> Which makes me feel old. But... Uh, we we also know we know each other through through our PhD projects. Uh, yours is in literature, mine is in film. So I feel like tonight we're in very safe hands because your academic work focuses on masculinity and violence in Cormac McCarthy's fiction. You have just submitted your PhD. I have. I have. <laughs> Doctor Jules. Final version is done and dusted. I do not have to. <laughs> type another word of it ever again hopefully. that is got to be such a good feeling I've got one more week uh left till I do exactly that which um yeah those bloody revisions yeah <laughs> no nah, you'll do it it'll be great but I want to know uh what actually first drew you to to Cormac's work I think I read The Road so it must have been 2007 when it was published and everyone in uh my honours I was either doing honours or creative writing or something at the time and everyone was reading it and I was about 22 and I read it and I thought oh my gosh this is the most profound thing I've ever read in my life (laughs) and um it really yeah I'd really never read anything like it at that age Mm. um I suppose and so I oh no I must have been before my honours because then I went and wrote about um no Country for Old Men for my honours project the following year. And then I read the rest of his books and I loved them all. So I did a master's on two of his other novels, Sutri and The Crossing, and then I decided to do a PhD on the rest of them that I hadn't written about. And here we are. Yeah. <laughs> so I think what really drew me to it, though, was his writing style is probably the thing I love most. It's very... 
unique. I think he's probably very well known for he doesn't really use punctuation much. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which can be a pain to follow, especially because he's also very interested in really, really long sections of and scenes that are just dialogue. So you mm. sort of have to sometimes annotate who's talking. Um, and he's so the first few of his novels were set in the American South, sort of around Tennessee, and those ones have very much more ornate writing style, which is sometimes compared to James Joyce. I know this is a cinema show, but um, no, no, no. <laughs> um, it's really interesting because he has also written screenplays, and I think that yes, there, there is something in that that he he's got quite a different style, and the fact that he's so dialogue focused in his novels means quite an, an obvious choice yeah. to go into screenplays. Well, that's right, and then his later works, like in the more recent years, have become much more stripped back. Like you think of No Country for Old Men, which he actually wrote as a screenplay before he then decided to publish it as a novel. I didn't know that. Yeah. Right. so That, that screen... makes a lot more sense. Yeah, because it does read like it mm. seems like it's ready for film yeah. in a lot of ways. Um, and then the road is reasonably stripped back too. So there's quite a variety in his writing style but also the feel and the sort of he creates these characters who do terrible things but you still have deep empathy for them. Mm. I was I was hooked. <laughs> Um, and I feel like we, we often think of authors and auteurs through their obsessions and like what, what themes mm. or questions and characters or musings kind of repeatedly yep. surface through their work. What would you say are some of McCarthy's obsessions? I think for McCarthy he's really – a few things. He's really interested in um, well masculinity and the experience of American – men you particularly american white men but very vulnerable sort of like very vulnerable and poor american white men mm. so all these books that are set around tennessee knoxville the appalachian mountains are all sort of about real outcasts and misfits and he does a really good job of generating and sort of bringing their world uh, to life and he doesn't hold back like he it's not a um, rose tinted view of it or anything but he sort of wants to tell those stories um, but also he's part of that is really exposing the violence I suppose that is entrenched in those communities and also um, that is exacerbated by sort of American national mythologies particularly around the the west mm. um, and he's kind of interrogating that, isn't he? He's not, yeah. it's not like just presenting it. And, no, he's yeah. very much sort of critiquing, interrogating, like sort of what is the what are the what is the power of these narratives? How are they actually exacerbating violence in our country? Mm. At the same time, he seems to love westerns, so it's sort of like <laughs> a funny contradiction between you know, which I think we could all say. Well, I don't know. I love westerns, but yeah, I also yeah. know uh, even the westerns that critique the genre are problematic. You know, in, in cinema as well. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, uh, yeah. It's it's interesting. I think some of his deeper themes. He's really interested in notions of like the materiality of the world, like the the physical material world. He's really interested in like in his own life. He's interested in physics. Um, and science. That was, yeah, that was something I did not realise about him because none of 
I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. You're, no, you're please. the expert on this. But <laughs> his film, his books don't seem to go into the territory of science and physics and mathematics. And yet he, what was it, from 1950 or something like that, he ended up like staying in the that yes, physics building? Was that's it? right. So it was more recent. Oh, sorry. I years. Yeah, no, <laughs> I like, I 1950 sound a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> like, how old were you? Then? No, I can't. 1980 exactly. or 90s, maybe? Yeah, it was for the last okay. 20 years or something. Yeah. He was um, sort of an honorary member of the Santa Fe Institute, mm. which is a system science institute. Um, they sort of bring together a range of, like, there's quantum physicists, philosophers, all sorts of really hardcore thinkers. Yeah. But he sort of had a place there and he would often proofread their scientific papers. That and, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. He he kind of – it sounds interesting though because when he – I know that he – I tried to find interviews with him and then when I texted you, you were like, yeah, he – He <laughs> hates do talking it. to people. <laughs> I did I did watch uh, the Oprah interview, however. Mm. So that would have been early 90s, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that he agreed finally. Actually, uh, no, sorry, it wasn't 90s. It was 2000? 2007. 2007, yeah. okay. Got all my dates mixed up. No, sorry, I, I was just agreeing <laughs> that. <laughs> but he, he agrees to – this interview with mm. Oprah, it's such an interesting thing to watch. You know, Oprah is this amazing, uh, you know, you, the most generous reading, I mean, self-made queen almost yep. of, of talk television. Yeah. Um, she came from an incredibly impoverished background. She had a very challenging life and has made this empire for herself, like a fascinating figure, yeah. a black woman in an absolute seat of power. Um, in America, uh, sitting opposite Cormac McCarthy, <laughs> who has been married three times. Yep. Uh, and divorced three times. Divorced three times. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not <laughs> so that we should I, clarify. Okay. <laughs> no, no judgment on no, that. No, cast no judgment. He, has, he is also um, chosen throughout most of his life a life of relative poverty. Um, yeah. And uh, much to the frustration of some of these, um, these partners. And... I thought that was such a fascinating thing. Here we have a white cis man uh, novelist who is selecting to live in that life and even like apparently there's an anecdote about one of his wives, you can correct me on which one, um, they get the, there's a call up um, and they offer him like $2,000 for an interview or something like that and he turns it down because he's like, oh, no, I've, I've said everything I need to say. Yeah. <laughs> She's kind of in the background like, no. Yes, exactly. We're going to eat beans again. <laughs> That's right because he, he refused to even – really write on a computer like he used his typewriter mm. he was very um like a luddite basically that's yeah that's right like mm. eating beans in the hills um mm. he was I, I mean if you read the flick during the week sent me an interview uh, or not an interview but a reflection by john hillcote about his time talking mm. to mccarthy um yeah just sort of about how he had a real disdain for sort of consumerism and capital. I mean, his book, many, many scholars have written about sort of his critique of capitalism um, and consumerism, in particularly in books like The Road, um, mm. No Country, and even in The Counselor film, depending on your interpretation of it. <laughs> but um, we'll get into that later. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's a really interesting character. I mean, I don't want to let him off the hook. I don't want to say, you know, I sound like I'm really elevating this guy. And sure, I, I, I do. On him, I love him a lot. But, um, you know, there's a lot of other problems with his work, um, I think. But yeah, in, in terms of 
he's in a lot of ways he sort of what's how was the phrase like he walks the talk of what he writes about like mm. he's um he's certainly not showy it was it actually really shook the Cormac McCarthy kind of nerd community when he did that interview with Oprah. Yeah. Because everyone was like, why why this interview? And I think it was no one really knows, I suppose, because he's never spoken about it, but it seems so strange that he went from having done maybe two interviews with um, the New York Times with the same journalist and then went to Oprah and it was sort of following all the press after winning the Pulitzer with mm. the road, which he didn't even accept that award in person. I think he sent someone else to accept it for him because he hates award ceremonies. And then to uh, show up on Oprah. Yeah. And you just later. feel, if you watch it, you can sort of watch it on YouTube. You feel so bad for Oprah. She's really generous. She's working so hard to sort of glean any <laughs> morsel of information. And he just sits there barely slumped. answering. Yes, yeah, slump. <laughs> She'll ask him a question and he sort of goes, well, and then sits for 10 seconds in silence. It's very awkward. You know, in my research for tonight's show, I did find a some audio of another interview that he did. A, a really oh, cool. Sp- yeah, and I think it was a more recent one. Um, I, I don't have the details of the podcast in front of me, unfortunately, but um, it was with – uh, a journalist who obviously was a massive fan of his work and a lot of the responses I've really felt for this journalist because it was just <laughs> it was just like yes or no's or just silence which just nothing. for an audio <laughs> format is or very which. uncomfortable yeah <laughs> um, but one thing that did seem to really spark his interest um, Cormac McCarthy's interest um, and enthusiasm was when they finally got around to talking about the Santa Fe Institute and all of the work yes, being done right. then. And he had so much praise yeah. uh, for the physicians and um, all of that. So it was kind of interesting how for talking about his own craft, I'm sure it gets boring doing interviews and things like that. But, you know, you've done an entire PhD on his work and unpacked so much and that's only within one thread of, of, of an approach. Mm. And there's been obviously so many books written about his work, both yes. from an academic perspective, but then also books inspired by his work and films. Yes. So he, forward, however you feel about Comic McCarthy, he's had a huge impact on the literature and film scene, I think it's fair to say. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and I think, you know, when I started my PhD a decade ago, which, you know, is a long <laughs> time. We've done a lot of life in that time, yeah. Jules. We've got so to know each not, other yeah. really well. <laughs> the, you know, he, at the time there wasn't actually as much scholarship around him, but now there's tonnes. Mm. Um, and I think that's partly to do with the popularity of The Road and No Country. I think the film adaptations have a lot to do with it yeah. too. Like, you know, No Country for Old Men, the Coen Brothers is oh. so beloved. One one of the best films kind of um, – I often put on a lot of best films ever made lists as well. You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I read – you know, it's it, – you know, I mean, it won so many awards. Yeah. Uh, and it is a great film and they so – Apparently label – just we can talk about it later. But, no, please. Um, <laughs> psychologists agree, uh, nine out of ten psychologists agree that uh, um, Javier Bardem's present um, oh, performance yes. as a psychopath is very accurate. Very accurate. <laughs> oh, it's great. I mean, Fun it is. Fact. He's very creepy. <laughs> I was re-watching some scenes last night and then reminded – I was like, he is really good at this role. He really <laughs> is. I'm still a bit um, traumatised by that film but I um, love it as well you know it's perfect but um, um no I think the impact yeah it's big and even now I uh you start 
reading other books and I think, wow, I feel like this person is probably a Cormac McCarthy fan, mm. Um, mm. which is kind of cool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a lot to I'm, – I'm kind of someone who has, has definitely read a lot of Cormac McCarthy, not as much as you, Jules. I have not got through all of his books. I've watched uh, most of the films we're going to be t- talking about tonight. Um, but I hope really for listeners that this provides a lovely introduction to Cormac McCarthy if you're not aware of his work uh, or the screen um, adaptations and also screenplays that he's worked on. And, yeah, I hope you enjoy tonight's episode. Um, So on tonight's show, we are discussing the screen adaptations and original screenplays of acclaimed novelist Cormac McCarthy, who died last week. And we are in very capable hands tonight because Julia's academic research is focused on McCarthy and the way in which masculinity and violence play out in his work. Um, And... That uh, that track that we just heard, as I said, is from The Road, which is John Hillcoat's uh, post-apocalyptic survival film from 2009. Uh, the Road is, of course, adapted from McCarthy's novel of the same name and the screenplay was written by John Penhill. Uh, it stars Viggo Mortensen as a man struggling to survive in a post-apocalyptic wasteland after an unspecified catastrophe results in the death of all plant life and almost all animal life as well and he navigates this journey with his young son played by Cody Spit McPhee uh it's a harrowing watch Jules it's it's rough yeah um I just a little introduction to this segment when it came out for some unknown reason I organized a group of between 20 and 30 (laughs) friends to go and see this film. <laughs> I was so excited it was coming out. The you road was out my favourite. Yeah, I literally I booked 30 tickets. Oh my Invited God, everyone I knew. How many walkouts? Um, I don't know, but it was many, many people walked out. And that afterwards, it was, it was only as the film started, and I think it, you know, it's like directed by John Hilco, it dawned on me. I was like, what have I done? I don't even know if I'm going to survive this and I know this story back to front. That is such a relatable story. I feel like I would do something as dumb as that. I was so excited. And then we get in there and half my friend's like, so what's the film about? I didn't watch the trailer. I was oh, like, oh, no. Um, okay. But people are like having their popcorn. And <laughs> oh, that's bleak. But, um, it's, yeah, it's dark. It's really dark. And I feel like I'm saying that as someone who who wrote all about uncomfortable cinema and, yeah. and, you know, very extreme cinema and watched a whole heap of violence on screen for 10 years and I found it uh, near unbearable. Uh, yeah, The Road I find interesting, the book and the film. I really mm. liked the film adaptation. I thought it was really good. Um, and the, for me the thing about The Road, are there are some moments of horror, I would guess mm. you'd call it. It's sort of punctuated by these really scary horrific experiences that the man and his son go through or Mm. face. Um, But it's more the the general kind of bleak feeling that it's trajectory that it sends you off on the utter sort of hopelessness and despair and this sort of beautiful relationship and but then you wonder what the point of it is. Yeah. I mean, I can't describe it in a way that accurately conveys the feeling it creates, but it's more about the mood, I think, that is the unbearable part rather no, than the yeah, actual ab- yeah. a- atrocity, so to speak, that does occur yes. as well. You're absolutely right. There, There is moments of violence, but it's not the violence really that is so upsetting. No. It's that sense of dread and also just sitting uh, 
with that world and that, yes. that notion of what would I do in that circumstance oh. and the flashbacks are painful as well because you get this sense of a – it allows for this time signature of, yes. of this catastrophe and also the – I suppose just it is about humankind, what, what would happen, in, how, yeah. how would people react and also just morally, morally how would we behave in that, in yes. that world. And it's so interesting. Um, I understand that Cormac, he was drawn to write this because of his relationship. You know, his, he has yeah. a son, Cullen. Yeah, that's right. Um, and this is what inspired it. And I, and I, I feel as though this is such an, a different film to watch as a parent. Uh, <laughs> Very different now that I have Fresh, children. Yeah. 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 I feel like I... I feel as though this is a very uncomfortable watch more so for parents because you just think you're watching it thinking, what if this was my child? How would I be um, oh, in this world? I'm much more sympathetic to the father now that I have my own children. I was so, I, I mean, sort of one of the main, if you're not familiar with the story, sort of moments of tension or threads of tension throughout the narrative is how does the father raise the son to be a good, like a good human being or what does it even mean to be a good mm. human being? So how do you raise a child? And he starts off making quote unquote good decisions and they sort of unravel as life gets harder. But I was so judgmental of, of some of the choices the father mm. made and some of the things he said to his kid in the name of survival the f- before I had my own children. Yeah. But now I'm like, You've got, to, Come you've got to do it. Do what you've got to do to protect <laughs> yeah, your kids. A, yeah, it's a survival so, film. Yeah, but um, but at the same time McCarthy – well, I'm McCarthy, but then Hillcoat I think does an excellent job. I think he was a really good choice of director for the film. Sort of getting, seems like an obvious fit in a lot of ways. So, yeah, so um, good. He would have done the proposition a few years before yes. if I've got my yeah. timing right. And – of course, it's not surprising that Nick yeah. Cave and Warren Ellis have been selected to do the score for that film. Hilkert has worked uh, extensively with Cave yeah. um, for his music videos and, of course, the proposition which um, Hilkert directed yeah. and then Cave and, and Ellis did the music for. So really uh, interesting collaboration, similar sort of space in some ways. Definitely. Um, again, like we were joking off air about McCarthy having this sort of like <laughs> being a bit of like a bro. Yeah. <laughs> Or at least being loved by film bros. Yeah. Um, it's the same with both literature. Kind of, yeah, yeah. And, and both kind of get put as um, films for guys, which I always found, I feel like Proposition, uh, The Road, I'm also thinking of The Revenant. I remember oh, yeah. mentioning to someone, uh, it was an older gentleman, that I really loved The Revenant and being him looking shocked because <laughs> he said it was, shocked. quote, uh, a real adventure for boys. You're like, yes, only boys like yes. adventures. We can handle a bit of bear eating and, well, it's bear attacks and yes. horse eating and all that stuff too. But, uh, yeah, it's inter- I'm, I'm, I say that obviously knowing how reductive that is, but it's also true that that's often that kind of cinema, survival cinema, mm. is given uh, to a male audience, directed at a male audience. Um, I, we have to talk about the performances quickly though. Yeah. Cody Smith-McPhee, 
Many listeners, I think, would have seen him in Jane Campion's The Power of the Dog. Uh, he made his screen debut in Richard Roxburgh's uh, Romulus, My Father, which is another screen adaptation of a novel, in this case, uh, the memoir by Raymond Gader. I absolutely love his performance in uh, both those films, actually, Romulus, My Father, Power of the Dog. But he is exceptional in this. I yeah. My heart broke so much. So much nuance mm. and sensitivity. I think part of the beauty of this story is the way it captures the, the inquisitive, the sort of curiosity of, of the child, mm. of a child, and how it's not lost even in this world, but how yeah. heartbreaking it is that it sort of gets funnelled into a, like you have to be curious about how to survive, not just about animals or trees or whatever. Um, and also, and he does a really good job of sort of carrying that. Oh, absolutely. And and the thought of things that you would as a parent think I will protect my child from that just cannot. That that no, luxury is not allowed in this gone. world. That's and right. I heard that um uh Smith V was given the role after his audition tape um was featured his father and they actually reenact that scene. Oh my gosh, uh, I didn't the, know this. Yeah, where the father shows him how to kill himself. Oh. Um, so that's what got him the role. He's expertly, like, fantastic. Viggo Mortensen, always I mean, wonderful. Amazing. <laughs> Can't imagine anyone else in that no. role. And I think you're right. The, there is so much that, that line between sympathy and, and getting, to, you know, understanding the father. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot in there. I feel as though um, we should move on to sure. some more of these because um, we are, of course, talking tonight about Cormac McCarthy and the screen adaptations and screenplays um, inspired by his work or, or written by him directly. No Country for Old Men from 2007, Joel and Ethan Cohen. Uh, this is a neo-Western crime thriller um, written and directed by Joel and Ethan uh, Cohen, but it, it is based on Cormac McCarthy's uh, 2005 novel of the same name. And you read this really um, quite sweet anecdote about how when they were preparing the screenplay that they just had the book open and there's entire <laughs> chunks of dialogue that are, are used for this. Um, I think that they they kind of wanted to be as faithful as possible. Yeah. Um, how did you feel about oh, how well it connects so with good. it? Yeah. It's so good. It feels like it's the same artwork, the film and the book. Like there are some slight differences. Um, the character of Carla Jean, who's Llewellyn Moss's wife, is slightly more drawn out in the film, like slightly. Um, but I think that the way they do it in the film enhances what's already there. Mm. So it's not – it doesn't feel like – yeah, it's just – it's really good. It's a really good adaptation. Oh, it's, it's so exactly how I imagined it basically. Oh, well, it was interesting hearing what you said before about how the fact that McCarthy actually wrote it as, as a screenplay. As a screenplay and then – a, um, brought it into a novel, which would have been really interesting. I suppose that mm. does happen maybe when people are storyboarding their novels. Yes. Um, that there's maybe some sort of connection there. But um, And then for it to be turned into a film, I, I'm curious as to whether he would have given, McCarthy would have given access to that earlier screenplay. Yeah, I'm sure he, well, you, yeah, I reckon they may well have looked at it because it is available to look at in oh. the archives yeah. At Texas State University. Yeah. So um, you can book in to go and read it there. That makes it a lot more sense then as to if they were able to access that and that 
ability for a screen adaptation to remain faithful to a book. Now, sometimes when you think about the experience of reading a novel, it's so different to watching a film. Mm. So sometimes when things are too faithful, they can I can imagine it feeling like this massive task. You know, one of the um, best screen adaptations, I mean, not best of all time, but Brokeback Mountain. Yeah. Sure. And, you know, um, Annie Perel, um you know, based on a short story. Yeah. And so much more manageable. And I think that, you know, Ang Lee goes in and he's able to bring out these characters and go places with it. And I do feel as though that connection to me of short story to film seems to make much more sense than these long detailed novels and then trying to turn it into yeah. a, a film. So it's, it's kind of impressive that the Coen brothers were able to be, I suppose, so economical in, yeah. the ch- in the choices, in the dialogue yeah. that they did select, which, you know, as you mentioned before, sometimes goes on for pages. Yeah. So, it, and in this, yeah. this is one of those books where sometimes mm. I, I would have had to annotate, like, who was speaking. Um, just just they, to make sense of it. Yeah. I think too, I don't know, I get the sense Cormac McCarthy secretly always wanted to be a screenwriter <laughs> and that's why he went for the counsellor. <laughs> but right. it's, like, better maybe that he stayed as a novelist. Mm. Um, Doesn't know how to edit himself. No, and dialogue doesn't always lend its long dialogue doesn't always lend itself well to cinema. That's but very I don't true. know. I feel like No Country and the Coen Brothers. There was No Country's dark, but it's also pacey and a little bit funny. Yes, and um, which as a novel, and that sort of meshes with their oh, that's completely their aesthetic mood. Yes, um, yeah. So it was such a great fit. Yeah, that's um, interesting because I wouldn't necessarily think of McCarthy as funny. <laughs> he's actually really funny. Mm. A lot of his more uh, the southern novels set in the south rather than the west are funnier because they have that real sort of American south, dry, absurd, uh, like vulgar humour. Well, it's not would, always vulgar but it's it's dr- very dry. What, what what books would fit into that um, category? One called Satri, which is really long. It's like many hundreds of pages um even child of god which Mm. is very dark subject matter we're going to touch upon that later yeah um it has moments of yeah this kind of funny dry humor Mm. in there yeah that's kind of fascinating here i just touches yeah well you're right though coen brothers have that that is exactly their kind of mo like you think about fargo there's lots of dark material there but i think i find that a very funny film to watch even though it has that tension and tension is how i think of no country for it's very intense they do a great (laughs) job of elucidating that just Mm. drawn out moment (laughs) and feeling tense and i love their um their approach with this it has a very minimal score um composer carter burwell's score has only 16 minutes of Mm. music and that is in a two and a bit hour film yes uh there was an amazing hear my eyes uh screening of no country for old men um, and I'm trying to think now who oh, I went to oh, that. Yeah, Tropical I... Foxstorm. Yes, yes. It was really good. Wasn't it? So yeah. such an interesting pairing where you could reimagine this film with that kind of mm. really hectic, um, really dark sound. Yeah, and score. sort of like Western. It had mm. touches of that traditional Western sort of inspired score sound. But yes. I found that, just to diverge yeah. slightly, that kind of um, – Took away performance. From it? No, 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 okay. not at all. I felt it drew out the humour more. 
Yes. Um, yeah, but I yeah. didn't know if that was just seeing it again with lots of other people. But I think it had to do with the timing of things because yes. a lot of those lines uh, in the original film as it plays um, – you know, in No Country, there's just lines of dialogue and then just silence. Yeah. And so it's, you know, an uncomfortableness, whereas when it's coupled with that um, reimagined score, yes. I think it added a lot more playfulness there. Yes. Um, even yes. though the music itself was dark. So I think that's what's going on. Yeah. It changes the beat into follow through the to time. laughter. Yeah, that's a yeah. Good, yeah. Um, But, uh, yeah, No Country for Old Men, easily one of my favourites. And I, it's really interesting getting that insight about McCarthy's humour as well because I do see that played out in this film really well. Um, now, <laughs> this is a strange one, but this is actually the next one we're going to talk about. The book of uh, is what actually first drew me to Cormac McCarthy. All the Pretty Horses, which I can't remember what year he wrote that. 92. Uh, 92. Thank yeah. you, Jules. Um, but it's uh, was adapted to the screen in 2000 um, with uh, Billy Bob Thornton in his directorial. Yes. What, directorial debut, maybe? I don't, don't want to say that on air because I'm not 100% sure. But um, basically, two Texas cowboys heading to Mexico in search for work. But they very soon find themselves in trouble with the law after one of them fails, uh, falls in love with a uh, wealthy rancher's daughter. Um, this is a curious one because I really enjoyed the book when yep. I was like uh, late teens, early mm-hmm. 20s. I really d- did not, not like, like the, film. the film. Yeah. And look, I'm not alone. I feel like it received a lot of mixed reviews. Yes. But uh, there was also an infamous battle. Did you know about this? Yeah, between between the production company and Thornton. Yeah, so Miramax, uh, Thornton put forward his director's cut and then Miramax came in and made all sorts of edits and cuts. Um, So, you know, both Matt Damon and uh, and Ben Affleck have publicly criticised the the yes. Miramax cut, um, and also the guy who originally did the score has never been. He, he actually owns the rights to the score and has never released it because um, he his music was redone. Really? Um, yeah. So they scrapped the original score and hired another guy, and so um, he's just never this original. Um, score um, done by Daniel Lanos, Lanaus, I think it's pronounced, he just has not released it. So there can never be a re-editive of that. And also Jesse Plemons uh, was originally cast as this younger version of John Grady Cole, but he didn't know that he'd been completely cut from the film oh, in the final no. edit until he went to the screening. So it's such an interesting That's as far so as like... Yeah, and just not like... To- <laughs> For quite a, you know, I would say a slightly dull film, there is so much interesting like film history and film drama mm. to this. Um, are you a fan of All the Pretty Horses, either uh, the book or the film? The, the book I adore. Yes. Yeah. The film, I mean, it's kind of a very familiar story. Mm. They've taken it out to make it – it's sort of been turned into a romance between – attractive young Matt Damon and Penelope Cruz who are very beautiful and young Mm. and that's not really the thrust of the novel but it's sort of what they've tried it feels like it's sort of been tried to turn have it turned into I think it's just that classic Miramax well not Miramax specifically but you know the sort of execs being like you gotta have you gotta have a love story 
You and can't possibly can sell it as, yes. yeah. um, as opposed to obscure literary Western. Yeah, yeah, which, <laughs> yeah, which it is, frankly. <laughs> it is, um, yeah. So I think that some of those edits, it, it just, for, as a film, I think lands quite badly. Yeah. Um, so the three films we've talked about have been No Country for Old Men, uh, The Road, and Just Then we chatted about All the Pretty Horses. Tonight's show, I know we usually try to pick things that are currently streaming or at cinemas. I feel like with these films, look, they they pop up and go on streaming services. They're around. You yeah. can always rent them. So um, go to your local DVD store. There are still some of those around. Uh, actually? You, yeah, actually. Wow. Um, we'll be doing a show on that in a, in nice. a few weeks' time. But, yeah, uh, you can go to Peach, Picture Search in Richmond. Highly recommend that one. Uh, we've discussed some of the screen adaptations of Cormac's novels. Uh, a lesser known one is Child of God from 2013, which is directed by James Franco. Uh, I haven't seen it, but um, the basic idea is there's about a violent man. I'm just going based on the trailer. You've yeah. seen it, Jules. He's a violent man and, and kind of seems to just descend further into this yeah. madness. Yeah, so he's sort of um, – he's already outcast from his small country uh, town, I guess you'd say, in – the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains in Tennessee. And he then becomes dispossessed of his home. No one likes him for various reasons, but he then starts killing people and killing women, really, mm. and keeping their bodies. Specifically women? In yeah. Film? Yeah, okay. Um, men get killed as well, but for different reasons. Mm. And, yeah, he sort of goes on this descent and into... Mental illness maybe, but it's more mm. about his sort of personal crisis of feeling alone and outcast mm. in some ways or ha- is it society's fault or his fault? That's sort of the question at the heart of the story. Mm. It is really hard to find this film. Um, it had a really small, like it wasn't distributed very widely, I think because of the subject matter. Yeah. Um, Even the trailer is a hard watch. Yeah. So... I don't know. It's it's one of the ones, look, if you're into James Franco's more obscure works, um, mm. this one's sort of a hard one. In terms of an adaptation, it, it's okay. It It's one of maybe Cormac McCarthy's novels that was possibly harder to think about in terms of adaptation. I know James mm. Franco always also was attached to Blood Meridian for a while. Oh, really? I didn't yeah. know that. See, I that think he was. like a more obvious one but it's got more of a thrust of maybe a western storyline behind it um and, and synonymous with with Cormac with Cormac McCarthy well. yeah, yeah but it's very um linguistically dense mm, mm. so difficult to Put on translate the, the sense of that visually which I think is why it's moved through so many directors it's interesting though because at the start of the show, you're talking about how Cormac McCarthy kind of approaches. You know, very few women appear in any very of his novels. Few. You've got Stella Maris. That's the first female main character mm-hmm. out of twelve novels. Yeah, he's got one other main character in his second novel, mm. who's a woman. And then I think we should talk about the fact when we, when all of these film adaptations, all four of these. All male directors. Yes. And it's kind of interesting because I feel like the, the material doesn't necessarily um, – it's not necessarily – even though there's not many women in there, this interrogation of masculinity could occupy a feminist space in itself. Yeah, absolutely. And that, a lot of my research was about this. Um, I was drawn to McCarthy. Obviously, I 
you know, it, his work affected me profoundly and I'm a female, but, you know, there aren't many women appearing in his books. So I mm. wanted to sort of explore this disconnect, like, well, why yeah. can I still identify with his work so readily, even though it's about men? Mm. And, um, yeah, essentially I interpret most of what he's trying to do as a real interrogation of the way that sort of these broad cultural myths about what it means to be an American man Mm. affect men negatively and exacerbate violence basically. Um, But at the same time he, I feel personally, has no idea how to write female characters. (laughs) He gave it a shot in his final novel. Which well, came out last year. He did the classic in the Oprah interview where he described women as mysterious. Yeah, he's like, they're mysterious, <clears throat> men don't understand women, direct quote. He's like, actually, yeah. they're just people. Yeah. But like, um, I he did say in relation to Stella Maris, his novel that came out last year with a female character, he's like, I've, I wanted to give writing women a go after all this, you know, 60 years or whatever being a novelist. Whether or not he succeeded is a different question, mm. but I, I – in, I took it optimistically that he, he gave it a shot. <laughs> good to know, good to know. <laughs> well, we mentioned before um, that Cormac um, isn't just a novelist, he also wrote um, screenplays. Um, so The Gardener's Son is the first published screenplay written by McCarthy, which was set in 1876 and it was um, – put into a two-hour episode of the television series Visions uh, back in 1977. However, the best-known screenplay of Cormac's is uh, for Ridley Scott's 2013 film The Counselor, uh, which is a crime thriller. It's written by Cormac McCarthy, of course, uh, directed by Ridley Scott, stars Michael Fassbender as the uh, counsellor as well as Penelope Cruz, Cameron Diaz, Javier Bardem again yep. and Brad Pitt. Uh, yes. It's a pretty stacked cast, but look, the film got a lot of mixed reviews. It got mostly <laughs> bad ones. Yes. I've Although got, some good ones. I've got a, I've got a bad one that um, Rotten Tomatoes summed it up as raising expectations with a talented cast and creative crew, then subverts them with a wordy and clumsy suspense thriller that's mercilessly short on suspense or thrills. <laughs> Um, it's my, true. <laughs> it's true. Luckily you didn't try cram 30 people into a, a theatre to see the counsellor, Jules. Oh, that would have been even worse. <laughs> to be honest, whenever I hear of the counsellor, I always think of that windscreen scene. Um, mm. I I rewatched it um, for, for listeners who have not seen the counsellor. Uh, basically, uh, Cameron Diaz, her character jumps on a very fancy car uh, and windscreen. Has, yeah, basically has sex with the windscreen. Um, it actually that scene won the award for the best what the fuck moment at the MTV Movie Awards back <laughs> in uh, 2014. Um, but to be honest, seeing uh, Julia DeCurno's Tatane the other year, um, the scene is actually it's really very tame uh, on reflection. Yeah, it's look, it's a when I was reading because I read the screenplay when it came out, and then I went and saw the film. And even reading it, I was thinking, what, like, why is this in here? Honestly, <laughs> it's so. It's I, like just basic male yeah, fantasy. Yeah, it's just a s- silly fantasy. It do- I also read another article that described how, like, physiologically this is also an impossible scenario. Oh, is it? Yeah. Uh, you know, part of my mind was curious. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. And Javier Bardem's supposed to be in the front seat sort of watching and 
but he's meant to be disgusted by it. So it was like... Do you think he's disgusted? See, I thought he was turned on. I feel like... Because then he describes it to... Um, the counsellor. Michael Fassman, As, yeah. you know, like, what was she doing? She's she's crazy. She's wild. She's, that's I don't true. understand it. But and I don't know if that's to an animal. Yeah, he, he compares um, her to, like, uh, I forgot the name of it, but the... Um, the thing that sucks onto the side of an aquarium. Oh, yeah, that's, that's how he. Yeah, so, so it it is kind of terrible. Yeah, it is degrading in that sense, like his comment. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a weird scene. I I really didn't like the counselor at all. I know there's people. There are people who love this film. Um, maybe I'm missing something, but no, I just yeah, I didn't thought get into for it. me it was another one where mostly the story is it is set up to be a thriller or a sort of heisty type drug deal mm. crime f- f- uh, film, I suppose, that is suspenseful. But it's really what tends to drive it or not drive it, as the case may be, <laughs> is these really long monologues yes. and dialogues, which, again, McCarthy delivers those very well throughout most of his novels. But in this case, I just don't think it translated very well. It's very meandering for, make for, for a heisting watching. <laughs> Yeah, and not even in an interesting way. It wasn't no. even, oh, let's subvert the genre. No. Um, no, it's kind of that thing where just given maybe too much of a, a loose rein. Yeah. Um, now, there's another um, screenplay that I have not seen this um, this film, but Sunset Limited from 2011. Um, and it was directed and, and also stars Tommy Lee Jones and Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah. Um, so is that right? It's directed by yep. yeah, yeah, yeah. I had to double check my notes. Okay, so you've seen this film? I have. Yeah. What did you think of it? Because for me, it, it almost seems to. It's based on a play, um, sort of, sort so, of. Place. Okay, because it has the trailer gives it a very play like feel. It feels like a play. So mm. the the text that it's based on is described as a novel in dramatic form. So. Some people call it a novel, some people call it a play, some people call it a screenplay, and it's just dialogue. So there's Mm. no – oh, actually, I think there are some descriptions at the start of each section that read a bit like stage directions. So it definitely feels like a play and it basically just takes place in one of the characters' kitchens, Mm. essentially, and it's just a conversation they have because one of them, Tommy Lee Jones, whose name is – well, the character's called White, tries to – jump in front of a train and black Samuel L. Jackson saves him. And then they have a conversation kind of about life and death and redemption. And uh, Does it cover race at all? Because it's uh, kind of interesting they called white and black. And, they, there yeah, it, a bit. Yeah. I mean, yes, it's that's embedded in it. Mm. That's, I don't think that's part of their explicit conversation that much. It's more to do with religion. Mm. But it does – and it's quite a – I don't want to say simplistic, but it's certainly a crystallised version, I would say, of many of McCarthy's ideas, maybe. Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I feel as though having focused the last few days on preparing for this show to think about Cormac McCarthy, something that's really stood out, and I've never really thought about all these films in conversation, even though, of course, I've got this one common thread of Cormac McCarthy, it seems as though he – you mentioned some of the obsessions at the start of the of this show, but just humans. He seems to be fascinated by humans and mm. kind of this question of of how we act when under pressure. Yes. And, and kind of whether we can be good. And That's absolutely yeah. one of, I reckon, his 
not just what he explored, but it seems like something that personally he didn't know the answer to yeah, or he wanted to find out the answer. Like can we be good mm. or, and what is goodness? And I, I, I wondered whether that whole um, obsession with also st- remaining for a large parts of his life in poverty was a way to kind of almost keep himself in check as yeah, well. Yeah, that's like. A- uh, uh, yeah, I it mean, that's to be, quite possible. Yeah, I don't know. It's just been like it's really, really interesting thinking of all of these films in relation and, and kind of trying to sense a, a sense of um, continuity or, mm. or, or common themes throughout them. Um, but it has been really wonderful diving into these. I hope you've enjoyed um, all the films that we've covered. Um, Jules, it's been wonderful going Thanks through. Thanks for having me. No, oh, yeah. Good fun. I feel as though this is something – it's been interesting having shared an office with you for, as we've worked out, roughly a decade, mm. uh, hearing you talk about your research and I, it's been really lovely thinking about it in a very different way tonight, just talking purely about the film adaptations, the, the screenplays of Cormac McCarthy. Um, so I, before we get into, um, you know, I, I mentioned before, sorry, that we usually would be able to list everywhere that that's streaming and in yes. cinemas. Part of me thought that maybe um, with the fact that Cormac McCarthy died last week that perhaps there would be, um, you know, like a screening series, you know, maybe SBS or ABC would pick up some of his films, maybe put it into a package. I haven't seen that yet. I haven't seen anything either, but I wouldn't mm. be surprised if something came out. Although SBS do show No Country they include it in a lot of their... Yeah, I think because it, it makes a lot of the, like, most awarded, the Academy mm. Award winners series, those sorts yes. of things. I feel like for, for listeners tonight, um, if you haven't seen No Country for Old Men, that would be my personal pick of tonight's shows. I also want to return back into the road, but I found it a bit too <laughs> distressing. Do you have a favourite, Jules, of what... Of these book films? Or, oh, book or um, film? Oh, I, my favourite book changes all the time. If pressed, I would probably say a book called... Satri, which is his longest novel. Um, and you did your honours on that one or uh, masters? My masters. And, but it, it explores many of the same uh, themes around masculinity, violence, um, sort of regional America. Mm. Um, but No Country for Old Men, probably my top, one of my top films, even if it wasn't a McCarthy, you know, novel. Yeah. It's, it's a really good film. Yeah, that's very true. And I, I love the fact that um, you touched upon some of the complexities in McCarthy's writing. I hadn't thought of him really in that kind of humorous line, but he's such a uh, talented um, conversationalist in his in his books. Yes. <laughs> Not in person. <laughs> but uh, he does dialogue so well. He does have a so, really good ear for dialogue. Yeah, yeah. So it's not surprising that we have these little um, aspects of humour. Um, I uh, It's been actually really interesting to go back through these films and, and kind of get a sense of him as a person uh, and, what, and what motivated him. Um, so before we wrap up, um, a quick Shout out to the uh, Unknown Pleasures screening series. Um, tomorrow night there's going to be a special feature of Dancing Shadows by uh, director and film artist Erin McCuskey, which was followed by a Q&A. I mentioned it on last week's show, but just another reminder to head along to that at the Thornbury Picture House. Um, and you can also listen back to tonight's episode on the Triple R website or subscribing uh, to the Triple R, the Primal Screen podcast. <laughs> Too many P's in that. Um, and uh, shout out to Luke Lay. 
Clay, who edits our podcast and also handles our socials. Jules, it's been such a pleasure having you on tonight. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Flick. <laughs> we'll get you back on to chat about, um, you know, non-McCormack McCarthy <laughs> related things. Um, but it has been really nice doing a deep dive. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 